Hello, TSF family. We wanted to start off by saying thank you. Thank you for listening to this podcast and for your hard work to love yourself more and for your feedback. Can you believe it's been three years that we've been doing this spiritual fix and it has been such a beautiful labor of love for Anna and me. We have loved doing this work. We've loved hearing from you and we love exploring ourselves and each other alongside our listeners. We wanted to put out the call for three ways that you can help support us to support you. One, we would love you to leave us a review on iTunes or follow us on Spotify. Two, drop us an email and let us know how much the podcast means to you. And three, you can donate monthly or even just once to our PayPal patronage. Every little bit helps and we are so grateful to those of you who have donated already. Thank you. You help make this podcast possible. Thanks, y'all. You can go to our website, www.thisspiritualfix.com for information on how to pledge as well as to email us. Are you a hypochondriac or maybe do you just kind of never trust your body to do the right thing? Today I'm going to talk about feelings of body betrayal, where they stem from, and what are some things that you can do to kind of protect your energy field. This spiritual fix. Two mystical mamas hacking the self-help game. With Anna Fiddler. And Christina Wilson. Hello and welcome to this second episode of This Spiritual Fix. I'm Christina Wiltsey. And I'm Anna Stromquist. And today we are going to be talking about uh, the hypochondria, the idea of body betrayal, and the obsession or exploration of alternative medicines that I've done. Um, but before we get into that, Anna, have you been watching anything good on TV that like has been your um, drug of choice recently? Actually went through and watched um, HBO The Vow. I don't know if you watched it about Keith Raniere and his Nexium cult in Albany, New York. I've definitely heard a lot about it and it is, it's like strangely disturbing. It's like one of those things from like an alternate dimension. You're like, how did that end up here? Yeah. Yeah. But what happened? Well, I only watched the first two episodes and I'm like, okay, I get the gist of this thing. Jump to the last episode. Cause I'm like, let's just lock this motherfucker up. <laughs> 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 and so the last episode, well, you know, if you watch the news, he's in prison. The last episode doesn't really go into that part so much. But the fascinating thing about it was this man was capable of pulling in really decent, really decent people, like really genuine, kind, conscious, you know, truth-seeking people. He was able to pull them in. And then like any great sociopath, you know, he, he got his um, claws in their brains and, and made them do some horrible things. But but I could see why they were, you know, I could see why they kind of fell for him. I could see, I could see the charisma he exuded, so to speak. I could see how a culture, I, I could see how someone could fall into the culture. A lot of the things he said, I'm like, that doesn't make sense. Well, that's stupid. Clearly this guy is not the real deal, you know, but I'm watching a clip. I wasn't in the two hour lecture. You know, I don't know what led up to the clip that I saw. Maybe he was very convincing in those other two hours. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. You said culture, but cult is just like a step away from culture. Like it's obviously we would call it a cult 
and I don't know the word origin, but it's interesting that 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 culture is just that cult is just a step away from culture, right? But you know, it it's without the year. <laughs> no, that doesn't. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly. I was like, I don't know what that one means, but not in the vein vein of victim blaming, more in the vein of being open to energies. It's interesting because the way you spoke about it was that the guy was a sociopath and he was so alluring and he was so charismatic or he was like that big charismatic cult leader. But I also think that, you know, victim or not like victim, like the, I'm not talking about the, 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 the victim abuser, um, rescuer cycle, which so many of us are in with so many people karmically. I'm more talking about the, sometimes there's just something in your garden that's like ripe for the picking. Right. And like you get, you get in a situation where like someone resonates on a certain energy and you think that it's, it's like, I don't know. I, he, he was exactly who he needed to be for everyone karmically, right? Exactly. These people That's all exactly had, everyone. all had their lessons to learn and it unfolded in the way that it was destined to unfold or it couldn't have unfolded in that way. If you come across as saying, you need to accept everything in the entire world. Like everything, like, like we were saying in the last episode, like just accept it, just accept that I'm a sex slave. It's like, no. No, like no one should accept that they're a sex slave, but it's like, it becomes this paradox because you're like, on the one hand, your spiritual lesson is telling you to like, you know, be equanimous with the world and be equanimous with, uh, with but, whatever's but happening. acceptance doesn't mean being a pushover. That's right. And I'll give you an example. When that person, that lawyer called me to try to negotiate the patient's bill, I was angry. And I was accepting that she wanted that and I was accepting my anger and I still said no. So I understand, like, I think you can completely accept reality as it is and yet accept the emotion it triggers in you and act on that. Yeah, exactly. There was, so there's this weird story. Um, I was reading it in, um, like I'm a student in the course of miracles and like, it was like in a course of miracles made easy book. Cause like the course of miracles is holographic. So you can't really read it linearly. Like you can't, like there's no, the, the best stories that, um, that kind of give you a linear progression of the course of miracles is the books by Gary Reynard, um, the disappearance of the universe, universe being the first one, but there's this other book and they were trying to describe the situation of like choosing love over fear. And it was like this really intricate or intimate portrayal of this woman trying to avoid being raped. And she got to the point where like, like the whole point of the story was that love, like instead of being fearful, because if she had been fearful, she like definitely would have been raped and she wouldn't have been able to overpower the person or get away or anything like that. And so instead she chose love and it made it so that it was just not nearly as it wasn't violent, right? Because she was always meeting him with love. And just being like, not like I love you, but like, I'm not going to be afraid of this. Like, I'm not going to recognize, like, I'm not going to be, I'm not going to feed into the fear that wants to kind of attach itself to me in this particular circumstance. And that story always kind of hit me in the wrong place, mostly because I was like, how do you love your rapist? Yeah, not only that, but like, I I can understand, it, it goes back to that same thing of like, where does acceptance lead to inaction? And maybe you know, like it doesn't because acceptance never, never it is completely mutually exclusive to action. Action can happen all the time. Like you can be acting in the world and you can be like running away from your potential rapist and you can be running away from your potential cult person. You can be doing all that kind of stuff and accepting that as long as you're not attached to it. You see what I'm saying? Like it gets, it gets hairy in there. I don't know. It gets like really muddy. 
the waters for me. Right. It's like, let me accept reality as it is. And then I see this atrocious thing happening, let's say, and I just stand back because I'm accepting, well, this is reality. And my neighbor does keep her dog out in the cold, you know, as an example, Mm -hmm. um, in the winter. And I'm just going to accept reality as it is. But I think it's more than that. We still have a moral obligation. And if, if, for example, seeing that dog in the cold made me angry, I will accept my anger and see my anger as a sign that a sign of injustice occurring. And then I have to think rationally, okay, is there really animal abuse happening or am I just, you know, is it just my injustice wound? But if, if I'm logically like, yeah, animal abuse is happening, I'm going to call the animal abuse hotline, you know, and get that dog picked up. I think there is, I think you can accept and act. Acceptance does not mean you're a vegetable. You're not a victim. You're not letting just anything happen. I think some of the most accepting people are also very pioneering as well. Yep. Yep. No, I I completely agree. And I think it's a matter of saying that using your same example, if you have always had an issue with your neighbor, right? Like you just fundamentally, there's like something about the neighbor that reminds you of your mother and you always had anger issues with your mother. And then you remember like you got left out in the cold because your parents abandoned you and forgot you. And then it's like, if your wounds are getting in the way of something that could be totally acceptable, then again, you also have to check to make sure you're not reacting. You're only acting. Right. Right. So when you're accepting and when there's no resistance and no unconscious resistance, you can act better in the present moment because you're not filtering it through all this past resistance. Right. And at the, I went to a Vipassana retreat in India and in Jaipur and it was one of, it had, the teacher was just like the best teacher I ever had because he used to just talk like a lot, like the, like he actually lectured because usually was, in these courses, the teacher doesn't talk. They're only available for office hours at lunchtime or whatever. Exactly. And this one was actually talking. I was a server at the time, so I may have gotten like more exposure, but like server, meaning you're behind the scenes helping in the kitchen versus uh, yeah, taking the course. Exactly. I was volunteering. Um, but one of the things that he said was he was like, Every single time that you think that you need to go to speak to a student who's in noble silence, who literally has probably not talked to anybody for five days and has only been within their own mind and like been very minimal interaction with anybody else, it's jarring to have someone talk to you when you're in that state. So anytime that you feel the need to address somebody directly, always check yourself and be like, am I reacting or am I acting? Mm. And that was the way that you had to serve. If you were reacting, you had to wait. You had to, and, you and had to, did he give a good example of how to define what, what, a re, what is a reaction versus an action? Yeah. It was like a situation where, um, uh, I think he did at the time, but like the situation that comes to mind is, you know, like if they've, if they've left something behind at their table and they didn't clean something up and they're about to leave the hall. Right. So like if you, if you have like, if you're reacting because you're like, Oh, they need to clean up. Like, why didn't they clean up? Like, you know, like it, if like injustice starts coming right. up in you, like, why are you making me clean up your stuff? Like if your stuff starts to come up in the middle of you serving, then, you know, you're in a situation where you're just like, oh, okay, well actually I can't react to that. I need to recognize that they could have just forgotten it. It's, it's not even about giving them an explanation that makes it okay. You know, it's not about like, oh, well maybe you just didn't see it. Or maybe you just forgot or maybe whatever. Like it doesn't even matter about that. All it says is like, is this, am I reacting to my own stuff? And is it really necessary for me to act to correct this? Like if it consistently happens and that's fine, then that's something that I just need to let them know that they need to clear their own plates and that's fine. And that's a, that's a, that's a situation in which you act to correct something. But in every other circumstance, 
if you're, if you're just like, this isn't fair, <laughs> right? If you hear that right. you heard, this isn't fair in my head, then you're reacting and then you can't, and then you're automatically attached to the outcome. Right. I think one of my like most recent situations where acceptance actually led to proactivity was I've been having terrible hormonal periods since I was a child, not a child, since I've been menstruating, I've had really bad PMS and everyone jokes about, oh, PMS and PMS is bad and PMS is rough. And so I've always just taken it like, this is just what every woman goes through. Well, after having children, it got even worse, like my hormonal swings. And so like, if you know me, I'm pretty much like a happy go lucky person, 25 days out of the month. And then five days out of the month, I'm a fucking werewolf. Um, no one can do right by me. Everyone is wrong. No one, everyone is out to hurt me and abandon me and reject me. And I am like a puddle of rage and depression. And I used to lock myself up during that time because I just knew I was just totally crazy. And, um, having children and a husband, you can't escape from anybody. You still have your responsibilities and everyone wants to interact with you. And with interaction comes conflict. And I would say that it wasn't until my stepdaughter was like, dude, you do not have PMS. You have PMDD, which is premenstrual dysmorphic disorder, which is like, there's no serotonin in your body. You are living off of nothing. Um, this is not normal. And it wasn't until I actually accepted and Googled it and looked up the criteria for this diagnosis and I had every single one and accepted, oh my God, I'm not perfect. My body is not perfect. My body has done something, you know, pathological and I create, I have in me this disorder. Mm -hmm. Um, I have this dysphoria every month and it wasn't until I actually accepted that I had a real problem that I actually took the steps then to get help and I got help and I got on pharmaceutical drug, which I have never in my life taken um, pharmaceuticals because I've always been like, everything is karma and mind and um, it's just Mm -hmm. Sankara. Sankara is another word for just like an impurity arising in your reality field from your past. So, you know, I've always taken it like when my PMS comes, it's just a beautiful opportunity to burn off Sankara and I can overcome this if I just become stronger mentally. And then I just accepted, nope, I cannot, I cannot, like I, if I've got no serotonin in my body, I'm doing myself no favors. I'm not doing my family any favors. Um, I like, don't even want to go to work. I like cancel patients. Like I just don't want to live for five days. And, and this acceptance of of the disorder made me proactive, ironically, because I was not resisting it anymore, right? Yep. And I'm like, now that I'm not resisting it, I have a choice. Like, do I want to live with this every month or not? And I'm like, I don't. So I got on meds and it's fucking awesome. <laughs> <laughs> so that really nicely leads into the whole betrayal of the body thing that I'm going to talk about today. Yay. Yay. I like saying body betrayal more than hypochondria. <laughs> like I feel like, and I'll explain that in a second, but like, it's really interesting because, um, it's only been recently that we've like been like, oh yeah, Christine's a little bit of a hypochondriac. Like, well, because in the past when you'd be like, oh my God, I'm dying. I have cancer. Oh my God. I have pneumonia. I have COVID. I'd be like, maybe she does. And then, <laughs> and, then and then like, as time passed, I've noticed, wait a minute, this always happens when she's PMSing yep. <laughs> and nowhere else. And she's a healthy woman and she does not have, you know, 
you name a condition that she suddenly has. No, she doesn't. And it doesn't happen like every month. She doesn't suddenly have cancer one month. And then the next month she suddenly has pneumonia or the next month she has COVID. So yeah. Or I, heart, heart failure. So was we like started to month, realize right? yeah. like, no, she doesn't have congestive <laughs> heart failure. She has hypochondria. <laughs> Listen, okay. So, so yes, I, I fully love and accept myself for all of this, but it's hilarious, right? Because, okay. So, so the context is that like this past summer, in the middle of the pandemic, um, I was going through what I call down the mountain and I've been writing like essays on each of the wounds, but basically it's like, should we kind of uh, explain? Yeah, I'll explain it. Yeah. Do you want to go ahead and oh, explain you can. it? Yeah, go yeah. ahead. Well, why don't you explain the five primal wounds and then I'll explain how I like linked it into my thing. So go ahead and explain the five okay, primal so wounds. There is a wonderful, wonderful book and it is called Heal Your Wounds and Find Your True Self. This book could have been a bestseller. Unfortunately, the title of the book is very misleading. Heal Your Wounds and Find Your True Self. It is not about that. This book is about identifying what your what your wounds are. It has nothing to do with healing. It is not a self-help book. It's like a diagnostic book. Mm-hmm. And I feel like if, if that if the title wasn't so misleading and the book cover wasn't so ugly, it could have been a bestseller. So anyways. Well, but it also reminds me of Louise Hay because Louise Hay book has almost exactly the same title, right? Like it's like something you can heal your life. You can heal your life. And hers is also a diagnostic, but in it, it also gives you corresponding mantras to come out of that, that, that diagnosis. Whereas this is more just like, these are the wounds. So have fun. (laughs) So the the wounds she gives, and it's, it's fascinating because she gives a context, a physical context. Like these will physically manifest. Like you can actually tell what your wound is by your body type because, you know, a rigid body type is going to become very stiff muscles and Mm -hmm. et cetera. So anyways, the five body, the five major wounds are rejection, abandonment, humiliation, betrayal, and injustice. So these are the five core wounds Mm -hmm. and each wound has a corresponding mask. So my, my wound of choice is abandonment and the mask for abandonment is dependency. So uh, people with abandonment wounds create codependency tendency. Um, the rejection wounds mask is the fugitive, meaning they flee. They also push others away. They run. And it might even be, for example, I have a friend, hers is rejection. And when she's mad at her husband, she just doesn't speak to him for like days and weeks at a time. She shuts him out. Uh, that's a fugitive behavior. Cause even though she can't run from him, she can shut him out in yeah. another way. Uh, injustice wound, the corresponding mask for that is rigid, uh, rigidity. Mm-hmm. The betrayal wound, the corresponding mask for the betrayal wound is control. Ooh, my favorite. Yeah, the people with betrayal wounds love to control other people and... Yeah. Yep. Control the environment and prepare for everything. And there's yep. no risk. Let's avoid risk, avoid risk. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the humiliation wound, she says very few people actually have a humiliation wound. We have all experienced shame or embarrassment, but to have like a true humiliation wound is actually very rare. But the humiliations wound uh, mask is this, the masochist. Right, right. So I, I do what I do, which is that for me, the whole world is an interlocking system. And like when I learn a piece of information like that, and I'm like, oh, it's the primal wounds, then I make it into something that makes sense. So what I started to recognize was that the wounds have corresponding chakras. And I was stuck for years and years and years in the injustice wound. And I correlated it with the throat. Because like you speak about your injustice, you speak about stuff being not fair, like it's all about sitting in your throat chakra. And then I recognize that if injustice, injustice was in my throat and then rejection was in my heart and then betrayal was in my solar plexus. Um, and then abandonment was in my, um, 
uh, the second chakra. Totally. Um, yeah. Right. And then, and then humiliations in the first, right. Cause it's all about like survival and things like that. And I could literally talk this entire episode about this, but I'm not going to, because what I recognized was at first I thought I had only one. I thought I was like, I have the injustice wound. And then all of a sudden, as I started doing this work throughout the summer, I recognized that I had all five to a certain extent. And so what I called it was this trip down the mountain was literally me re-entering my body it was like having to go into all these empty rooms that like nobody's cleaned for 37 years you know or some sort less than that and so and it was interesting because it was like it was just totally fascinating way of of something would happen that would trigger in the environment and I would be given access to the next level right like I would be given access to rejection or betrayal or whatever and then I could go in there and I could process it And I could like, but I would, you know, be expanding my awareness about it and be like, oh, look, I look, I'm rejecting this person and this person's rejecting me. And isn't this so amazing? And then it usually always ended with this realization that no one can reject you or, you know, nothing can betray you. But for me, I think that betrayal is like my kind of primary wound, right? I think it took me a long time to realize that. But this summer I went into the betrayal, I got access to the betrayal wound and to my third chakra, I call them the shadow chakras, these primal wounds, because I thought I had COVID. Like I went, I kind of went out of my bubble in a major way. And I was like, oh my God, I just, I I stayed a night in a hotel, even though it was like supposedly had all the COVID proof stuff and da, 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 da. And I woke up the next morning and I had been tired because I had slept. I had, you know, driven like four or five hours, but like, I was obviously just coming down with something, but I woke up and I felt really sick. And then I was like there over the weekend and I kept kind of taking herbal stuff, but I was like, none of these are COVID symptoms. So I should be fine. And obviously at this point I didn't realize I was a hypochondriac and I was probably also just feeling bad, but man, what followed that trip was six weeks. Oh, was this July? This was in July was six weeks of panic attacks like you would not believe. Like I thought I was dying. I would read COVID stuff all the time and I would just, I got completely hooked into the the tether of COVID. Um, you thought you were dying. I did. Yeah. I did. Um, but what it was, was I was literally just deep, deeply diving into betrayal. And for me, betrayal manifests as betrayal of the body. Like that my body is going to betray me. I don't trust it because it's going to betray me. That has a lot to do with the fact that Fundamentally, it kind of comes from this, um, in this life anyway, of recognizing that like my mother, she died of breast cancer when I was six. And for me, I figured that the only way that a mother would choose to not be with her children and help see them grow up was if they chose, is if their body betrayed them in a way that they couldn't control. Right. And so I saw her struggle. I saw her die slowly over these two years when I was really young, but like I saw her die and I saw her struggle with the emotions that she couldn't get out of her. And I saw her struggle with the memory she couldn't get access to. And I was like, well, this is bullshit. Like it was like a very, very primal response to, okay, a- apparently your body is allowed to keep stuff from you. Like it's allowed right. to, it's allowed to keep stuff from you and then it kills you. If it doesn't keep it, it, like, it'll never reveal it to you and then it'll keep it to you it keep it, you know, then it'll right. kill you. And maybe easier than saying my mother is betraying me because she's leaving. It's just easier to be like my, my mom's betraying. body is betraying her. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So that's a lot easier. I held on to that. And then as I became a mom, I went into a postpartum psychosis right after the daughter, the birth of my daughter, um, for about two weeks where I couldn't sleep 
eat. And I was in constant panic attacks. I was in a very similar place than I was over the summer because I was afraid of dying. I was afraid that my body would betray me. I couldn't sleep because every single time I tried to sleep, I would wake up gasping for air because I thought that my body, like it was also just like a natural hormonal response because that's what happens is like, that's what happens when you kind of go through the quote unquote baby blues when the hormones or pregnancy hormones are leaving you. But like, I literally thought I was dying and I could not sleep because I could not get to the only way I could sleep is if my daughter was on me. Like she had to be skin to skin with me because it was the only thing that regulated my hormones and, and helped to, to placate this wound of like, I'm going to die. You're going to leave your daughter. I'm going to, I'm going to leave my daughter. Like I was left and I'm going to be trauma. I'm going to traumatize her and no one's going to be there to raise her and she'll never remember me and blah, 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 like on and on and on. Great thoughts before trying to fall asleep. <laughs> I mean, it was, it was, I mean, it was one of the transformational moments of my oh, life. Yeah, that and, was rough. And this summer was too, because what I did was, um, the only way that I could get out of it was I started breathing. I started doing the holotropic breathing, right? Because the only way that I could, I couldn't do it with my mind. I couldn't do it with the process. At the time we were doing a lot of hypnosis and that was, oh, yeah. that, that was, was the, worse for you. It was so much worse because what it was doing was it was just, it was pushing me back into my mind when I needed to be in my body right. and dealing with it and being like, Hey body, this is not okay. Like you can't, uh, you know, like, or not even this, uh, just accepting that, you know, the, the body is the body and the body is going to be doing whatever it is because, you know, for years, I've, I've been so interested in alternative medicines. I've, um, you know, I studied to be an herbalist. I did Ayurvedic, my God, I've done like a two week Panchakama in the middle of Goa in India. Um, yes, I'm also very privileged to be able to do that. But, um, you know, where I had two women massaging me at the same time. And then I got Shiradhara, which is like where they drip warm oil on your third eye every day. And then like yoga classes and just like the best food, and I've just always like sought these experiences of like, who, what can I do? Like I've seen Tibetan doctors and I've seen, I've seen iridologists and I've seen just, just like everything that you could ever imagine. Like I've, I've seen that doctor I've been to, I've done acupuncture, I've done trauma clearing, I've done, I, ever since I was young, I went to chiropractors who pr practice kinesiology and so muscle testing on me. So it's like, I've been exposed to all these things on my life, which was like very important, but it also was masking the fact that I was fundamentally afraid that there was something wrong with me that nobody could figure out. You, you know? needed doctors. I needed doctors. Right. And I didn't trust, I did not trust medical doctors because I had had so many terrible experiences with them. But I didn't, I, I needed doctors. And so coming out of that, I'm still not out of it. Um, one of the things that helped a lot was I did a human design. I like figured out my human design, which is uh, an, a topic for another day. But one of the parts of my design was that I have what's called an open, open splenic center. And don't worry about any of the, the, the terminology around that. But just to know that that people who have open splenic centers fundamentally do not believe that that the world is there to support them and that they that the world is there for them to survive. They they feel that the rug could be pulled out from them at any point and that they could just die for no apparent reason. And it's a really interesting thing because they also the gift of it is that you can actually physically feel when an environment is negative. 
you can physically, or when somebody is else is sick, you, you take on their, you, you can feel it in your body as if you're sick. And if you don't know what the boundary is, if you can't figure out what the boundary is between you and other people, you're going to think you're sick, like all the freaking time, right? Like you're going to think you're sick all the time. So if the collective is in a place of utter panic, then you might start having panic attacks if you don't know how to protect yourself and kind of right. keep that you away. You can't identify what feelings inside you are yours and what is part of the collective or external. That is exactly it. And like I say, it's a gift because you can be a very good energy healer because you can feel what other people are feeling and you can also feel, feel when it alleviates in the other person. So that's what I can do is I can recognize when I do work on someone, I can feel it when it releases. Mm-hmm. I'm still discovering the good parts because there are a lot of downsides in the sense that like one of the things is you tend to go with people who don't have this, right? Like you tend to go to people who have what, you know, defined is what they call it, defined splenic centers. And you may stay in a relationship with someone for a lot longer just simply because you feel safe around them, right? Because it's all about safety. It's all about like, how can Mm, I feel safe and how can I feel okay about everything? So it's, it's a very interesting thing. And I struggle with it still all the time. The PMDD that Anna was talking about uh, earlier is something that I'm kind of, because, you know, I have, for the most part, the symptoms that I show up rarely show up physically. Like your PMDD. Yeah. It's almost always emotional. It's almost always associated with like depression and anger. Yeah. Mine is like rage and depression. Yours has a little um, splash of hypochondria in it. Yeah. Yeah. I think it has a big splash. Big splash. <laughs> a big splash. Of and mine has a big splash of abandonment in it, of course, because, you know, that's my, cho- that's my shadow yeah. chakra. Yeah. So a bit, a bit of betrayal in mine and a bit of a, a bit of abandonment in you. And so, you know, as I've, I've, as I've just kind of gone through this period of like recognizing the boundaries and recognizing that there is no benefit to being able to not like some people have a tendency to help people and they just want to dive straight into their wounds, like to the other person's wounds. Like they just want to be like, I want to help you so much. I want to do this and this and that. And if you do that, then you can get lost. And there really isn't a benefit to doing that. So that's one level of it. And then the other level of it is genuinely, I don't know how to create boundaries because everything feels like it's me. Like I just feel big or I feel whatever. So things that you can do to create boundaries. Can you think of anything? Um, An octahedron, perhaps? Yes. Can you want to explain that? The octahedron was actually a tool given to us by our shaman, Robbie. And it comes from the book called A Course in Mastering Alchemy, Tools to Shift, Transformed, and Ascend by Jim Self and Roxanne Burnett. And there is a YouTube video where Jim Self actually explains how to do this. And basically... You create an octahedron, which is an eight-sided pyramid, four-sided pyramids on the top, so the apex is above your head, and then a four-sided pyramid on the bottom with the apex below your feet, and you spin them, and this creates like a force field of energy around you. It's a security, and you can also uh, adjust it as you wish. For example, you can write on the walls of your pyramid, you know, safety, security, balance. I remember when I would put my kids to take my kids to preschool and it was their first days or so, I would put safety, happiness, joy. I would like paint that in my mind on their octahedrons and, and or grounding or protection, whatever it is. And you just kind of enhance that vibration, Mm -hmm. that energetic vibration. So for me, when I go into an airport, for example, I'm not as much of an empath as Christina. 
But when I go into a really crowded area, like an airport or a subway station or something where there's a lot of energy and I feel a lot of energy and it can be really overwhelming, I'm like mindfully spinning that octahedron as fast as it can possibly go, which is the speed of light. Mm-hmm. So it ends up being just like a light force field. And I feel like that keeps all the energy off me and I'm just like safe and confined in my space. And then that really helped. It kept me from getting headache and anxiety in airports because I would really just kind of take on that, that very anxious vibe of the airport. Yeah. And when I'm with a patient, for example, like I seeing a hospice patient or a patient in a lot of pain, I'll spin it then too. I'll just be like, you know, this is their karma. This is what's happening to them. As unpleasant as it is, this is their life cycle. And I need to detach and step back from their process because it's very easy when you're working with people in pain or dying, like to get sucked into that sadness. So I will also spin my, my octahedron at work. Yeah. And that's great. That's actually brings up what I was going to bring up, there are a lot of different, different tools, which we won't necessarily all cover today, but like, I think for me, the thing that really does it, that the real protection that I need is like, you know, cause the octahedron is amazing, but if you don't remember to do it, it's not that it doesn't work. It still works. Like, it's still like, like I have an octahedron around me all the time and I'm just like, yeah, that's cool. But I like, in some ways, what you said there at the end is so key. Cause you're like, this is their process. I need to step back. Like that moment of realization that your value, like their value in and of themselves is a mimic of your own value. And therefore like the value, you both reflect a value of autonomy and sovereignty and you don't need to, there's nothing that you can do. Like if they need to go through their process, they need to go through their process and that's what they need to do. And you need to be there to hold space for them, but hold space does not mean hold them and make them do their process and things like that. Like the clients that I see, I can't tell you, it's hilarious. They, they, they appreciate this about me now, but it took me a long time to not want to just like fix things for people. And then instead to be like, I'm going to, I'm going to give you nine out of 10 steps and you have to do the 10th step yourself because it's not going to be the same if I do it and you're just going to be like, and, and we're not going to get the progress that we need unless you do the work and you recognize your own self-value because I say self-value, you know, sovereignty, like that boundary that says that like, not only am I worthy of not having to take on other people's stuff myself, but also I'm capable of not processing myself. I'm capable of like doing it myself. And it's also about acceptance. Like I accept, I'm not going to resist that you're in pain. Like you're in pain. I mean, as bad as that sounds, I accept it. I accept that this is your reality. I'm yep. not going to resist it and try to, to, to change it. I can't change it. Like I can't, yep. but yeah. accepting that it is what it is and they have their path to follow and we have ours. So what are you doing for your body betrayal right now? What am I doing for my body betrayal right now? So I am, what I try to do is for one thing I have been trying to do well, See, the thing that I suffer from more than anything is like lack of discipline. And I totally, because I'm just so inconsistent. Like I, I, I treasure that about myself in the sense that like that inconsistency makes it so that I have a ton of magic in my life because you never know what's going to pop up when someone's completely different and doing different things every day, but it makes it a little bit hard sometimes. So what I've been trying to do is, um, I've actually been drawing more than anything, I've been trying to use, or I haven't been trying to, it's been successful of using art in particular as a outlet for all of the things that I feel in my body. When I'm seeing clients now, I've started to do mandalas and draw 
because I feel it's necessary to that there's a level of things that happens when you tra- when somebody comes into your field and when you're like reading them that that gets siphoned off into a physical artistic experience, right? So that I take on even less than I would otherwise. And then I just do it for myself all the time. Like I, I feel like my creative outlets are, it's not a lifeline because it doesn't feel like as dramatic as that, but it makes it feel like I'm happy to be in a body so that I can express artistically. I continually accept and recognize that I'm often not happy to be in a body and that I don't want to be in my body which is a whole nother level of complexity beyond my body's going to betray me. And I just, anytime that it comes up where I'm just like, oh, I think I have this or, oh, I think I have that. I'm like, okay, I accept that. I accept that my body thinks that I'm sick. And I also accept that I have not, I've, with the, apart from one something in January, I have literally not been ill in three and a half years. Like I've never gotten a cold. Right. I mean, it's insane. Like I was like, you, you start to get perspective, you start to get perspective and you start to recognize that like, actually, yeah. And you got to watch out too. Cause like that movie, what the bleep do you know? You know, you tell yourself something over and over again and you're telling yourself, I got this, I got that. And you never even did. So fundamentally you are healthy. Mm -hmm. So maybe change some of your thoughts to, yeah. yeah, or maybe not. Maybe I, just think, I think it's just. It. I think just, just accept, accept it. The yeah. yeah, fuck it. Just accept it. Yeah, just accept <laughs> it, and also accept all the evidence because that's a really important thing to do. Yeah. Because if you don't expand, okay. So a great example of this is like back in February, I went to the doctor, and he's like, "Oh, you have a heart murmur." And both people, two people in my family, like very close to my family, both have um, bicuspid hearts, right? So basically, it means that instead of like three little flanges on their heart. They have two and then also just have naturally enlarged aortas, right? So for me, I was like, oh my God, as a hypochondric dam, I'm like, I have this thing where I have very similar body types to them and I have, there's a very good chance that I have this as well. But I saw one of them go through this process in which they actually healed their heart. Like they were imminently needing heart surgery. They went through this massive process in their life. They came out on the other side they're no longer anemic and they don't need heart surgery. And I'm like, okay, so this is, there's evidence everywhere that says, that tells me that I need to not be scared about this. Right. I go to the doctor in February. I have a heart murmur. I come out of that thinking that I'm, I had the same heart as these family members do. And then, and then I go back last week and he's like, oh no, you've improved this dramatically. And I was like, Oh, great. So I did the work on my heart. I've been doing the work in my heart space and my murmur is less. That's awesome. If to piggyback on that, it's funny. We, we got a puppy in the pandemic mm-hmm. at the beginning of the, I don't know, March, no, July. We got her in July Yeah. and she, September, September. We got her in September Yeah. and um, she was born in July. We got her in September and the, and they caught the puppy breeder calls us and is like, you know, we took them to the vet. This has happened like twice in the last five years, but this puppy has a heart murmur. I don't know if you want to keep her or not. We can't make any kind of, make any kind of, um, we can't promise anything about this dog. Do you still want her? And I was like, what do we do? Like, I don't want us to spend money on a dog and get attached to a dog. It's going to die. And my husband was just like, she's our dog. Like we love that dog already. She's our dog. We'll just take her and see what happens. And so we brought her home and we, I had my kids and our, my husband and I, we all prayed on her and loved on her. I took her back to the vet after her second puppy appointment. He's like, her murmurs healed herself. Cancel the cardiology appointment. So 
not to say that we maybe would have healed on its own anyways, but I'd like to believe that our love helped heal it too. Cause we would directly send love to her heart. Yeah. That's the thing. And collecting all the evidence and not just being partial to the evidence that proves the otherwise, you know, proves, proves your neuroses is a really important thing. I know all this. I literally do healing energy work on people. I will heal their stuff. Like I can do that. So why do I think that that doesn't work with me? Right. And then part of me was like, I tell my kids like, we're getting her anyway. She, even though she has a heart murmur, I'm like, don't worry kids. We're going to heal her. We're going to love her so much that heart's going to heal. And then I'm like, well, fuck, if it doesn't, what am I teaching my kids? But if it does, what am I teaching my kids? Yeah. It's worth it. It's worth that. Uh, it was worth the risk. Yeah. And, and I've done that with my, my daughter, especially I've done Reiki on her and I'm like, I'm going to give you the magic hands now. And she's like, I need some magic hands right now, mommy. And it's just like, that's, that's the world that I want to teach her is that like, no matter what comes up, we have the tools. Yeah. Or we'll find them or we'll find them. Right. And we'll just accept it either way. Right. Like it's, it's not about fixing the body. It's not like it's fun to go to all these doctors and it's fun to kind of do all these different things. And it's not fun to think that you're sick all the time. But in either case, it's both both of them are worth accepting and both of them are worth recognizing that you may have you may have some sort of like, you know, fundamental belief that you just need to get rid of that, that the body isn't going to betray you. So if someone listening right now has hypochondria mm-hmm. or body betrayal, what, what loving words of advice would you have for them? I would say, honestly, the, the most profound thing that I did over the summer that helped the most was that I came to terms with my fear of death, right? I came to terms with the fact that like, I just, I just recognized that like, yeah, if I died, my kids wouldn't have me anymore and my husband wouldn't have me, but I'm okay with that. Like I, I, it took a long time. It took a lot of different work, but like hypochondria manifests because we are fundamentally feel as if we're either ill-equipped or that we're afraid of death. Right. And I think most often it is afraid of death. So like kind of becoming a friend and, and is one thing. And then the second thing is, is every single day, a lot of my betrayal, it stems from self-hate. Like it stems from this desire to not want to be in a body and to fundamentally not like being human and, and so then I just say, I love you. I love you. I love you. I love you. Like I, it's my mantra is just to say, I love you. And it helps anytime that like, it helps stop me from reacting to my kids. If I get angry during PM, PMDD, it helps me if I'm depressed, I'm just like, Oh no, I'm okay. I love you. I love you. Even though you're like this, I love you. That's awesome. Yeah. Well, self-hate is the topic of our next podcast. So yes. we will follow up. I will discuss self-hate once again yes once again it's all about self-hate it's the bottom of the bucket it really is the bottom of the bucket you get there and all of a sudden you pull the you pull the tree the tree out by its roots so well thanks for sharing your um episode today on body betrayal i think that's it's something a lot of people can identify with absolutely absolutely thank you all right thank you bye bye everyone have a great day thanks for listening Thanks for listening to this second episode of This Spiritual Fix. Like us on Instagram at This Spiritual Fix or review us. Review us and leave um, a rating on Apple. That way other people can find us. And then look forward to next episode when we talk about grace. Uh, It's a really great episode and we hope to hear from you guys and have a wonderful day. 
Let me tell y'all a riddle. There are four girls and four apples in a basket. Every girl takes an apple, yet one apple remains in the basket. How is this possible? The answer, one girl took the basket. She took the last apple while it was in the basket. Sometimes all it takes is a perspective shift. This is my specialty, y'all, and I am opening up two spots in the next two months for dedicated journeyers to work with me to find peace, purpose, and most importantly, perspective. In these journeys, we co-create a curriculum that suits your current blocks, goals, and needs, and we use all the tools, shadow work, books, fiction, remote viewing, intuition, meditation, guided journeys, energy healing, dreaming techniques, you name it, we do it, and all to achieve a commonly held set of objectives. And if you're interested in hearing more, Book a free call with me at www.chriswilty.com forward slash discover.